0: Hello and welcome to Discourse, the Religious Studies podcast's monthly feature on religion in the news and current events. My name is Emily Cruz and I'll be your host. Lucky me. I'm the assistant director of the Martin Marty Center for the Public Understanding of Religion at the University of Chicago and a recent graduate, thank goodness, of the PhD program in History of Religions at the UChicago Divinity School. Like many academics, I study an unholy number of things, but currently I'm mostly focused on religion and issues of gender, the female reproductive body, and practices around fertility, pregnancy, and mothering in Africa and the U.S., Today I am joined by two wonderful guests. Uh, We are going to discuss three articles that give a lens into how religion modulates various kinds of publics and public discussions about politics and the social body. So let me introduce our two guests. First is Dr. Richard Newton. Richard is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Alabama. Actually, I should say Roll Tide. His areas of interest include theory and method in the study of religion, African American history, the New Testament and Western imagination, American cultural politics, and pedagogy in religious studies. He is the author of Identifying Roots, Alex Haley and the Anthropology of Scriptures, the editor of the Bulletin for the Study of Religion, and the mind behind the pedagogy site sowingtheseed.org. Welcome, Richard.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: My pleasure. Second is Dr. Theo Wildcroft. Theo is a yoga trainer, writer, and scholar whose innovative research considers the democratization of yoga post-lineage and the evolving practice of teaching yoga for community health. She's the author of Post-Lineage Yoga, From Guru to Me Too, an associate lecturer at the Open University, and project coordinator for the SOAS Center of Yoga Studies. Welcome, Theo. Uh, Thank you.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Yes. I'm really excited about today. And I think we should just go ahead and jump right in. So Mm -hmm. Richard, if you don't mind, would you be willing to start us off and tell us about your article?
1: I would love to. So the article I selected for today is called How Social Justice Became a New Religion, the subtitle being Our Society is Becoming Less Religious, or Is It? It was written by Helen Lewis and published in The Atlantic. This piece is Fascinating to me for a number of reasons, but one way I'd like to introduce the piece is that it's probably a place where it had a different title initially. Um, how social justice became a new religion, because what the piece does is it takes a look at sort of progressive counter-protests that are happening in the public square in the United States, in the UK, and elsewhere, and then looking at how social groups are coming together and laying out their stance, whether it's uh, regarding LGBTQ rights, rights for other minoritized groups, and pushing back against the status quo and saying, you know, get on board with our agenda. If you're not doing so, um, this is a sign of your own damnation. This is a sign of your imperfection. This is a sign of your sin and where you've gone wrong. And this is le- has led some public intellectuals and social commentators to sort of note, is this a, a new religion that's taking shape here? Um, but I think in the conversation that at is being uh, teased out within the piece itself, it's less about, oh, look at social justice as a new religion and more like, how can what we think we know about religion help us characterize or describe these social justice movements. And I think the reason why this piece caught my eye is because a lot of scholars of religion read this piece and immediately jumped in to sort of tear down some of the assumptions about how religion works, everything from its mention of collective effervescence to transcendence and and other things, comparisons to catechisms and all sorts of moves that might make us sort of shudder or grimace. But I think actually here is a great opportunity to provide maybe a different or sharper perspective on how the study of religion might help us understand what's going on in our communities in the public
0: square. So how do you think the study of religion might help us understand these things?
1: Well, I I think uh, at least as a, you know, when I put my teacher hat on, I never want to belittle the initial observations that someone makes, but rather sort of press those observations further and see what do they illuminate for us. So one thing that I found particularly fascinating in the piece is this idea that uh, some of the refrains and phrases common to what some people would call like certain social justice movements or woke groups, things like referencing pronouns or naming pronouns, announcing pronouns, performing like a land acknowledgement to indigenous groups who initially or originally were said to uh, belong to the land and vice versa, reassuring a group that there are certain values that are held dear for a community. Naming these sort of common affirmations and phrases are likened in this piece to things like catechisms. At the same time, they seem to be signs of a kind of a more tribal time, to quote the author. And I think that's fascinating that we're thinking of things about primitivity, but also social formation. And the link there should be teased out a bit. So what, what is it that's making us in this contemporary modern era or postmodern era nervous or afraid that we think that there's something one wrong b- wrong with being attached to the past two likening the past to such a negative and frankly kind of ethnocentric your eurocentric ethnocentric americentric uh, perspective and and three something that is also not intellectual, not intelligent, not thought out. So as scholars of religion, why, where might we make an intervention there? And I think it's it's the politics of social formation and the boundaries we lay out between us and others, and also the, the ways we adjudicate those things. And I think religion has a great history in that. And what we've learned from the history of religion gives us some food for thought for teasing that out further. Meeting audiences where they are.
0: Yeah, that's really nice. And I think a really generous um, way to approach it, it gives a good sign of, you know, of what you might be like as a teacher. So I think you're right. Like we're predisposed as scholars often to start with critique, right? Tear down, tear down, tear down. And I'll be frank, I think this article makes that pretty easy. (laughs) And so it's a sort of, you know, next level or third level commitment to say, sure, okay, we can tear it down. We can show the ways this has a kind of early anthropologist sort of evolutionary perspective of ritual and and the past, et cetera. But instead, let's say, well, what are our, our tools that we embrace now, help us do? And you pointed us really nicely to the politics of social formation, um, how we police uh, the boundaries of certain groups um, and how stuff like language factors into that—it's really nice.
2: I, I also think that there's there's an issue here in terms of what it, what a what a particular group's point of reference are. So I, it, it's fascinating to me that such a common thing for a religious studies scholars to do—to approach things that are not a religion and use religious studies so these themes, techniques, and methodologies to kind of tease things out about them and, and, and figure out what's going on as a result. So, you know, it's one of the most fun things a religious studies scholar can do is to take any aspect of kind of popular culture or modern life and say, you know, in what ways does this show evidence of, you know, different kinds of things, including ritual, for example, um, or purity taboos or whatever else it might be. So we're, we're, kind of, we're kind of predisposed on the one hand to look for those themes that we might consider to be religious within all sorts of aspects of modern life. And yet we use theoretical language to do so. So when a journalist or whatever tries to essentially do the same thing, but the only language they have for that is the language of things like catechism and so on and so forth, they're making very similar points. They're making very similar points about how these things show up and how you can compare different aspects of social life that are, you know, that have something in common with religion. They're making the same point a lot of religious studies scholars would be making. They're just doing so without the the theoretical reference points to do so. So I actually think it's really interesting to consider the ways in which social justice movements provide solidarity, provide moments of kind of, you know, uh, communitas, provide ways of kind of navigating and negotiating ethics as as a group together, you know, the kind of taboos that come up uh, and so on and so forth, the kinds of kind of right and wrong language that comes up as a result. The problem only really comes, I think, from a kind of political or a social perspective is when you then dismiss those movements because they are, as a result, somehow unthinking and unintellectual. And that says more about the political class's view of, Religion, I think. So I think that's an, a, you know another thing we can push back on that religion actually has more to offer in terms of our understanding how publics, uh, um, uh, public spaces, and public discourses are ne- negotiated uh, than often they're given credit for. I think in many ways.
1: Yeah, and and. To, to that point, one of the, th- the things that this article does that I think a lot of uh, scholars of religion have missed there is the sort of flip of the move to sort of a theoretical vocabulary. Even mm-hmm. if it's an older theoretical vocabulary, yeah. what we see evidence of in this article are people associated with communities that would traditionally be deemed or even self-identified as religious. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a chaplain here, for instance, who's talking about Marx and you know, opiate of the mass mm-hmm. and about maybe the social justice movements as amphetamines of the people. Um, you know, you get moments where scholars are talking about Durkheim, and, or not scholars, mm-hmm. but rather the sort of insiders being discussed are talking about Durkheim. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that they would move to, that is the people traditionally understood or associated with religion would move to a theoretical vocabulary to sort of make sense of what they're seeing around social justice Mm -hmm. should actually help scholars better understand that making sense of the political claims is complicated and being able to articulate the stakes is not something that the scholars can so easily pull themselves out of as well yeah. so sort of sensitivity that's perhaps not shown in the article is a warning for for those who want to even begin to enter the conversation but it's not a conversation people should be shying away from i don't think on the contrary Definitely. it's one that perhaps uh, we should continue to to press further and raise more questions about
0: yeah, there's a place later in the article where she says politics has crept into every, I don't know if she says, corner or aspect of our lives. And I find that sentences like that and lots of other parts of the article replicate a way that we often also talk about religion in kind of public or casual and, and even media discourse, which is like that it's always everywhere. Um, and I think scholars of religion do this, too. You know, we're like, we cannot discount religion ever. Like, this is our bread and butter. So take it seriously. And I think it's really interesting to see the ways that the the language of the article replicates, just as you said, a certain kind of vocabulary we might use as scholars, but also that we might use as Americans or certain kinds of Americans, or et cetera, which makes for a really interesting thing to try to tease out. And I find, you know, as you said, you put on your teacher hat, I was doing the same as I was reading this and thinking, if I'm teaching my students how to read this article and read it well, what do we do there? And, you know, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to not tearing down the article, but I also think looking for where we find some assumptions um, and some generalities that persist across broad conversations about religion can be productive. And I was curious if you noticed some of those, Richard or Theo, places where you think, you know, especially as as scholars of religion, we're attuned to finding a kind of regular use of certain assumptions about what religion is or does, or how it's defined, or how it's used, et cetera. And if you don't, if you don't have any ideas, I'll tell you what I'm thinking, but I'd rather let you go first. <laughs>
1: Well, I think with the idea of these groups being a new religion, right, there's yeah. already a recognition that we're in a moment that is accustomed to pluralities of religion, right? Yeah. And with that pluralities of religion, we can start to think about the terms by which we do that, uh, you know, distinguish one religion from another and and sort of parse that out. And, and in the article itself, we see reference to chanting and texts and so-called commonplaces that become the signs of religion itself. At the same time, with the appeal to Marx and Durkheim and others, I get the sense that we also – have a moment of refraction for ourselves, where we see that some of the tools of a certain era of social science and, and humanities, as it were, have become part of the kind of common vernacular or lingua mm-hmm. franca, as it were. I remember a history professor of mine one time discussing how psychology is kind of part of a lingua franca for for our period, insofar as everyone feels comfortable to talk about subconsciousness and yeah. Um, yeah. We, yeah. Can, we can discuss... It's- uh, and to you diagnose
2: know. people on the internet, yeah. Right.
1: yeah. yeah. I mean, wow, like I didn't know I could do this, you know, without paying someone with a degree and, and signing up for a time and all the, all the like. Yeah.
0: Laying uh, on a very nice couch with your feet up. <laughs>
1: yeah. and, I, and I was wondering to what extent has religious studies arrived at that moment, whatever we take religious studies to be, beyond something like, oh, look, Star Wars has Joseph Campbell. You know, that, I mean, I <laughs> think at a level, that's sort of where the study of religion um, that might be identified, especially as sort of comparative religions approach, might have entered the space. But seeing Freud and, and Durkheim and Marx and others sort of enter the conversation, right? They enter the chat as part of how you make sense of what is a proper religion brings to question the sort of notion of new religious movements and some of these other things that not only are things that scholars of religion talk about but ideas and politics with which people in this world contend. Yeah.
2: I think, I think the, the, the big, I think the, 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 the issue here is one that is common within kind of media and popular conceptions of religion. Uh, and it's one I think the religious studies scholars talk about all the time, which is that we haven't managed to get into kind of general consciousness yet. The idea that something can have, that, that there really isn't any such thing as a religion. There's not these discrete again. It's the comparative religions par- paradigm, or it's the world religious, par- you know, religions paradigm that people are still using because that's the form of the kind of history of religions or study of religions they had when they were at school, and that kind of this kind of newer attitude, which is it's it's Mallory Nye, it's about religioning, it's about all the spaces in which kind of religious themes and ideas and principles play out, um, you know, hasn't reached the mainstream yet, and I think the takedown of this article is as much about that as anything else. It's religious scholars, again, getting grumpy about the world religious, you know, world religions paradigm, <laughs> which we like to get grumpy at over and over again, you know, because I, and, you know, in, in, in my own work, because my own work works not just with new religious movements, but with movements that wouldn't, that in many cases won't call themselves religious or certainly won't call themselves a religion. And this idea of, you know, what's the, What's the, if you like, the kind of psychological weight or the, the social and cultural weight that's attached to the idea of being a religion? What does that mean to people? Why are people resistant to be put being put into that box? Because if you're saying, you know, if you're playing with ideas of psychology, everyone understands that that's something you can kind of play a little bit fast and loose with. But if you accuse something of being a religion, you're putting it in a box that has a lot of cultural weight attached to it. And that's a very different thing. And I think that's often... Uh, what stops us from having more nuanced public and uh, media conversations about religious themes in, in public life? Because you know, everyone can say, "Well, it's it's interesting to think about the the themes uh, that might the religious themes that might play out in social justice movements." That is a very different thing to saying you are a religion and therefore you are irrational. You are, you know, all these other things. You are dogmatic. You are all these things that we associate with a religion. Um, And I, I think it's as much about that as anything else.
0: Yeah, I really like the idea... I'll just admit sort of um, egomaniacally for our field, I love the idea of religious studies becoming lingua franca. It's, you know, mm-hmm. what do I love about teaching intro to religion or intro to religious studies? It's sort of hitting some very fundamental things that I think this article missed or chose just not to address or didn't care about that exactly, you know, as you both have said, scholars of religion got so grumpy about. We're like, come on, we've been talking <laughs> about that stuff for years. And I think it's nice to think like, oh, maybe there are ways that we We have become uh, sort of more threaded into certain vocabularies or certain forms of discourse. And I think I see the kind of Mark Starkheim stuff as a more proliferation of social science, maybe. Um, Mm. I do love to claim them for the study of religion. But I also, I think I see more in this article, particularly from the people that the author is interviewing, although also from the author herself, a proliferation of the vocabulary of religions themselves, so a kind of insider vocabulary, even if the author herself isn't coming from that perspective.
1: But I think it's the knitting together of that vocabulary from the social sciences and the mm-hmm. observations made through that, along with the sort of languages that have been enshrined in lexicons and concordances and dictionaries as part of the project of religious studies, um, and Mm. other fields too, um, that when together as said, you know, discourse as it were, um, get someone to distill it all under the rubric of how something became a religion.
0: Yeah. Like I, I
1: think, for sure, any, there's a way in which one could write this story that has nothing to do with religion, doesn't use the term religion, but how fascinating that someone's going to distill it to the identification of something as a religion and, of course, the response that that elicits from an audience, strong as yeah. it may be. And uh, so, so the exercise, I think, at one level is saying, what's the better title or what's the better headline for this piece? And is there something missing when we take out or modify the term religion if we're using religious you know people being religious or thinking about it in terms of religions or using some sort of you know again going back to sort of these indices people often use of text and ritual and whatever spirit yeah. is there something lost gained but also why doesn't it make people feel as fill in the blank as whatever the atlantic chose to land on chose to land on with social justice becoming a new religion when we know it's not a religion but Something's happening when we think about it that way.
0: Yeah, that's. I mean, I think that's really. It's a very nice sort of way to um, weave everything together. It might actually be a very nice point for us to pause and shift to Theo's article, and then you know, kind of keep in the back of our minds, our backs. Um, Theo, you want to tell us about your article?
2: Yeah, this is a uh, this is a slightly sneaky one because it's it's it, it's a new article, but it's not really news. It's kind of one of these kind of. Um, opinion fluff pieces rather than a news article. And I think the news is kind of hidden in it in a really interesting way. So the articles, uh, it's another one from The Guardian. Uh, I think uh, it's Rory Carroll, isn't it? I think, uh, Richard, you looked it up because I forgot to note it down. (laughs) It's it's how islands, Harry Krishna Island went from dream to folly to recovery. And even just reading that title out is tricky for me, because I know it's not the Hare Krishna island. it's It is a particular retreat centre uh, and a particular island that was bought by the Iskon movement. and that is how they refer to themselves not the Hare Krishna Island. So there's some interesting stuff, kind of, as I said, kind of hidden in it, but the the narrative of the of the article first, kind of the first layer, is this story whereby in the kind of early 80s, Ireland had this tiny kind of Hare Krishna community and they made this decision to buy an island. And the kind of, the the way that's framed is, you know, these kooky, dreamy hippies who decided on this big dream that they were by an island. This is exactly the kind of thing you would expect kooky hippies to do. Um, and, uh, you know, and it's based on a tradition of monks inhabiting tiny islands, uh, not just in Ireland, but all kind of, you know, across the kind of North Atlantic and beyond. Um, and But, you know, the island itself was costly to maintain. It was isolated. It got very cold in winter. The kind of the whole community dwindled until there were very few uh, there. There's a kind of side story about a kind of big uh, controversy when the island was accused of um, drugging ice cream and kidnapping a guy from Dublin, which is like it's a proper kind of like proper new religious movement. We're going to use the word. They haven't literally used the word cults, but the word cult is heavily implied in this kind of little detour. And then um, all of a sudden, the island is now thriving uh, and it's thriving. There's kind of one line in the middle of the article, which um, kind of is important, which is about that kind of they're renovating and upgrading the island as a retreat center for visitors from Ireland, Britain, India, the US and elsewhere. And it's it's got this lovely line, you know, drilling and hammering now competes with the tinkle of bells, which is very cute. Um, And but again, if you kind of look through the history of this kind of like this fluff underneath this fluff piece, what you actually see is a really interesting story about that's actually quite familiar to me about uh, new religious movements that are essentially very white dominated in Europe and, and uh, I think, it's, you know, the same in, in other parts of the Anglophone sphere. Um, but that are based on kind of Hindu and particularly kind of yoga related kind of roots, um, such as, uh, you know, ISKCON, which is very much based on the Bhakti yoga tradition. Um, and then as you get a kind of an in various generations of immigrants in uh, from uh, India and South Asia more generally into that area in this case Ireland although this is a story like I say that plays out in in England at least elsewhere as well um, that those particularly kind of more, what you might consider more outward looking, more cosmopolitan, sometimes second generation immigrants, um, Indian immigrants then um, decide they quite like the ISKCON temples for Hindu worship. So they don't want to go to the kinds of temples um, that their parents might have gone to or that they might find in India. And they're kind of charmed by these kind of white led um hippy hippie versions of hinduism the, the you know the, the the services that are on offer the rituals that are on offer um are very familiar and so you get uh, you're getting a resurgence uh in esp I think in various places in the world um where uh, as i say kind of south asian uh, uh populations are coming to the temple in in much greater numbers than ever before and it's a really interesting story of uh, I think what Thomas Tweed calls kind of crossing and dwelling, you know, this idea that you get um, kind of different kinds of religious movements and cultural movements that kind of localize in a particular place. And then they, they have interesting methods and ways of transitioning to new spaces. And then they localize again. And you have these kind of two ongoing competing forces of dwelling and crossing that keep weaving in and out of each other in the development of different religious movements and ISKCON being one of them. You know, that you get um, a group that um, is born first kind of, you know, um, between India and the Anglophone world. And then, you know, as that dwindles and then you get this new kind of influx of, uh, of members with kind of very different backgrounds and very different kind of intentions and the ways in which what was this kind of little hippie self-sufficient community is now reinventing itself, essentially in uh, in response to an economic change, which is they're becoming essentially a high-end retreat center um, for wealthy uh, South Asians and other ISKCON devotees um, in order to kind of, you know, reinvigorate the space uh, in a very different way. So I think there's just so many layers of change um, hidden within this little fluff piece. I think that The story underneath is really interesting. And I also think that the way it's talked about as a kind of kooky story is also really interesting.
0: Yeah maybe let's pick up with that last part which I think is you know like in your analysis and in the piece is so interesting that you know it's easy I think for us uh, as as uh, academics and maybe for other readers too to tease out some of these threads you know immigration mm-hmm. economy diaspora etc mm-hmm. but I'm I'm just thinking a little bit about like what the presentation of all those many threads is is in the actual article and in the language. And I'm just curious if you want to talk a little bit more about the notion of like a kooky puff piece and how that fits into a, a broader way that we might think about the ways that we talk about new religious movements or yeah. cultural appropriation or, or whatever.
2: I think I think one of the most important things about the tone and the way it's written um, is the kind of lack of... Um, lack of kind of uh, uh, things event the different kind of various events that happen and that over time are presented in a completely kind of a social a historical a political way it's like this happened and then this happened and then that happened and then these things happened, you know and it's kind of again i think that's what makes it a bit of a fluff piece it's meant to be a little bit um and you to feel a little bit unusual it's meant, to, you know, a little bit out of the ordinary, but also a little bit kind of isn't this strange and wonderful and interesting rather than these are specific changes that happened according to specific moments. So, for example, there's a point at which they say during the kind of scandal, they didn't it was they were proved innocent, by the way, of uh, drugging ice cream. Um, and but, you know <laughs> they did. Thank goodness. It's it's really in- but it's interesting that the article wants to kind of put in a few lines about you know brainwashing, drug ice cream, and kidnapping, which is literally the words that they use. Whereas the story underneath that uh, is kind of in one of the quotes that they have from one of the members of the community, which is the Catholic t- Church was a bit on top of us. Interesting phrase for supposedly taking their sons and daughters. So what we actually have is we have a community that seemed to be very much in tension with established religious movements within Ireland, of course, being Ireland being very much a Catholic country. And this, you know, hidden in that one quote is a wealth of kind of social tension and change um, that happening in, in, in the 1980s in Ireland. And yet, the article wants to talk about, you know, controversy followed in the form of a fabricated and discredited story about brainwashing, drug ice cream, and kidnapping. Like that's the bit they want to tell us about yeah. is the drug ice cream, right? Um, which yeah. did not happen.
0: Do so you get a sensationalized sort of mm-hmm. like, ooh, this could be a Netflix series? you yeah. know, a little bit of the article. This
2: is Wild, wild Country too. Yeah, <laughs> Right. But then at the same time,
0: you know, that picks up on stuff we're used to, I think, as mm-hmm. readers is seeing like, um, you know, ooh, let's make this interesting and sensational, particularly mm-hmm. when it comes to things like new religious movements, that weird combination of, oh, it's just harmless, wealthy white people out in the woods, mm-hmm. um, you know, being like maybe a little weird, but um, which, you know, has packed into it assumptions about race, about class, about practice, Mm -hmm. about ritual, Mm -hmm. whatever, uh, about cultural appropriation. But then on the other side, the idea that at some point there's a shift where things become more dangerous, more suspect. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, you know, in a very different setting, we certainly don't have time. It would be interesting to map out stories like this and see like, at what point we can, you know, put on issues like that or questions of things like race, gender, class etc on to, to the kind of shift in narrative mm. um yeah. which feels to yeah. me quite different from richard's article you know the tone is very yeah. different i
2: i would love to know that there are a couple of links in this article to older articles but um if you, if you want to talk about the kind of shift in media presentations when the original scandal a supposed scandal about this chap being kidnapped and drugged broke um, it you know he went on on rte which is kind of the um the main kind of one of the main Irish channels, he went on one of their big current affairs program and they had, um, which is called Live Line. And they had like multiple nights about this story and this, and and this scandal and, you know, this, this wild group of hippies that were taking our sons and daughters and kidnapping people. So, you know, if any, if you could find the footage, it would be really interesting to compare that footage to then the kind of later articles about this, kooky story about, you know, hippies being accused of brainwashing. Um, and th- I think just to do that alone would be really interesting.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, I mean, for, one, for me, one thing that stood out about this article um, that's uh, connected to the one that I brought, but also just the, the article in its own terms, uh, mm. seemed to raise a question about, for me at least, about whether a similar story could be told or found were it not for ISKCON. Right, like if it was another, like, is there another group in Ireland contemporary with this that the same sort of thing could be said about, mm-hmm. uh, or or does it require the presence of a new religious movement or a new religious movement as storied as right the Hare Krishna's and George Harrison mm-hmm. and others that mm-hmm. somehow captures the imagination and provokes our suspicions? Like, why couldn't this be the family that starts a restaurant of Americanized? Era, uh, sort of Irish fusion Indian food, and it becomes its own thing, you know, or uh, and, and people come to make this, you know, something else and, and try to come to grips with what's what it is. And yet it's not what came from the, the home country, right, or the motherland or whatever. whatever. Uh, so so is it does it need to be a new religious movement? Does it need to be ISKCON to surface the same issues, reservations and, and concerns?
2: I mean That's a really good question. I'm, I don't know the answer to it, but I think it's a really good question because I think you're right. I think if this was about food and fusion or other kinds of or politics and fusion, I think it would be a very different article and it wouldn't be written in any way in the same way um, at all. But I'm also kind of aware uh, how that kind of... Um, the the place I think you're right the place of ISKCON in general cultural awareness is interesting in and of itself above and beyond being a new religious movement ISKCON itself and the Hare Krishnas like you say, that kind of long uh, and complex, but really kind of media-friendly history involving George Harrison and various other things as well. Um, they, I mean, there's a point I think in the article where they talk about uh, I think it's Ukrainian Harry Christian. I can't remember. I'm trying to remember now. There are ISKCON members and communities from elsewhere in Europe coming over to this centre, mm-hmm. um, and it is interesting. It's always been fascinating to me this the the ways in which ISKCON has managed to situate itself. As the default for Bhakti Yoga, which is actually a much wider uh, tradition, not just in India but also in Europe and America. You know, Bhakti Yoga is is, is has many different forms, many different kind of smaller and uh, and and other other movements and and groups. There are a number of them here in the southwest of the UK that I you know I could reel off. Uh, a number of different uh, groups with different gurus that they follow different. Uh, and indeed, they come together. You know, there's one of the things is back to yoga scenes. These days are quite often mixed mixtures of groups, of groups, people from different organizations, groups coming together to worship together. Um, so you will find ISKCON people there, but you also find Babaji people there. You'll find Amma people there. You'll find, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, so the way that ISKCON within has has managed to break through into this wider um kind of cultural t- to become this cultural touchstone for bhakti yoga is really is really interesting because when you describe this island to me it sounds like any hippie intentional community ever in europe as far as i'm concerned <laughs> you know that at some point turns itself into a high-end retreat center because it's the only way they can keep going like that's you know i could real <laughs> numbers of them doing exactly the same thing basically
0: yeah, I mean, this is, it's really interesting to think about how language of new religious movements, either, you know, the the actual, that particular locution, but also, um, you know, certain vocabularies and framing, you know, do did similar things in the articles that you brought, but, you know, ultimately kind of diverged. And I think that gives me actually an, a new way of thinking about the article that I brought, mm-hmm. because I had something else in mind. But I think that might be a neat way into it. I say as I segue to my to my article. <laughs> um uh, my article is called Um Comeback. Abortion Doulas Look to Spiritual Rituals as they embrace for increased demand. Uh, and then the subtitle is Abortion doulas Who Draw on Spirituality, Challenge the Abortion Debates, Religious Slash Secular Divide. Uh, this is from July by Catherine Post, published in the Religion News Service. Mm-hmm. Um, in initially the way I had been thinking about the article, which is really fascinating, it's short, um, but it has an incredibly rich set of data. Um, and originally I had been thinking about it exactly as the subtitle suggests as like, where does religion or spirituality or secularity, where do those things, uh, converge? And particularly where does spirituality as a concept, um, how does it mediate something like the secular and the religious, um, How do we think about spirituality? And I think maybe we can come back to that if we we have time. But the more I think about it, the more I see language about new religious movements and uh, or like new ways of being religious appearing in the article. So Mm. the article discusses the ways that abortion doulas are engaged in different types of what they themselves call and what the author calls rituals around abortion typically um, after the abortion, but sometimes before. Um, so in case there's anyone listening who doesn't know, doulas, um, the, the word doula has become, has come from the Greek and been used in English to signify a kind of helper around birth and birth-related things. So pregnancy, miscarriage, birth, abortion, etc. cetera. Um, also around breastfeeding. And the article uh, writes about the ways that People who are helping um, in doula spaces around abortions are moving toward new types of um, rituals that we might associate with being religious. But the interesting thing is that the author shows the way that uh, those rituals aren't necessarily directly associated with the practice uh, or you know the belief system or the culture of um the person who has uh, received the abortion, or even necessarily the doula uh, themselves. Uh, the majority of people here use um, she, her pronouns, so I think mostly they consider themselves women, doulas, and and um, uh, people who received abortions. But it's really interesting because you start to see, just the way that, that Richard described in talking about language, you start to see this kind of melange of stuff that I think conventionally might not be understood as belonging to one single religion or another, um, you know, particularly, I think for a, a kind of casual reader. So we see things like mikvah, um, a kind of ritual bath associated with the Jewish tradition, but then altars, letter writing, prayer, uh, embodied practice, etc. cetera. Um, and it's very interesting to see how the issue of abortion as a physical or emotional or psychological Um, religious issue becomes wrapped up in um, rituals as a form of uh, response. Mm -hmm. And I, I was really fascinated with the idea that all the people who were interviewed in the article, all the doulas felt like there was some sort of response beyond the medical needed to address this issue. Um, And that makes sense in part because of their own jobs. They know about this because they've been hired to do this. Um, But the sense that I got from the article was this notion of a new kind of growth and combination of practices and ideas needed to address something that has become an incredibly um, divisive and significant political issue, particularly in the US in the last few months.
2: I I wondered, uh, I wondered reading this, whether you um, have come across the concept of death dealers. At all, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. So the way that because I know uh, I, I know at least one uh, death doula, um, and I know a number of kind of midwives and doulas that are, you know kind of independent midwives and doulas and so on. Um, and often the way that they've described their work to me is in terms of transitions. So the thing that kind of for them that links all of these events, uh, including kind of death, but also you know uh, uh, as you're saying, abortion, birth you know, all these different things is as being a guide for, for experiences of transition. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm really reminded of, uh, you know, my dear friend and colleague, Graham Harvey's work on uh, on religious, the idea of relig- religion uh, or religious activity. Being about um, negotiating and navigating certain life events in certain ways and that you bring a religious professional in, whether that be, you know, a a medicine man or a doula or a priest or whatever else it, it might be, whenever you're negotiating events, particularly of a more than human nature, and there's something about all of these events that feels more than more than human, not very human, but also more than human. Like, that you're you're touching something very transitional and very liminal, uh, uh, you know, that is going to change you as a person in ways that are unprecedented and in some ways unexpected. And that you need someone there to help you through that process of transition. It is a literal, you know, rite of passage, you know, to use that fairly old school phrase.
0: Yeah, I think that's a lot of what sort of comes up here is the notion. I mean, in a way, it's like very, you know, sort of conventional, again, back to old school anthropology, you know, Mm -hmm. the idea that we have these moments that need to be marked in a particular way. um, And that's, you know, through a particular kind of embodied ritual for the most part, Um, which in a way there's an isometry, you know, abortion is an embodied practice, pregnancy is an embodied reality. um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in a way to echo that embodied experience makes sense. Um, But what I thought so was so interesting about the article is the, how different the tone is from each of your articles when it comes to the idea of uh, a lack of clear categories um, or a new way of potentially being religious or even not identifying as religious but needing something that externally someone might identify as religious. Um, and the tone of this article is broadly um, – you know, I mean, it's it's fairly neutral, but it isn't written. There's no criticism offered here of these practices. There's no sense that people are doing something wrong or bad or that newness is a problem well, or or that, that the old stuff is bad.
2: I think in that you use the word need a lot just then. And, and I think there is something here about a recognized need is that when we're talking about uh, Richard's article and my article, you're talking about a, a kind of journalism that attempts objectivity essentially through n- not recognizing a very real human need that's going on. So you say, oh, this is a new religion or oh, aren't these hippies doing weird things in fields? You know, you're, you're, what you're saying is, here are these weird human beings acting illogically in some way, right? And what you're saying is, is this is an article that recognizes at the heart of this is a very real human need that we need to show, even if we don't necessarily understand it, that we need to show a certain, give it a certain amount of dignity, right? And that one of the things that religious uh, religious events and, and, and so on are doing, and one of the, these things that the doulas are providing is dignity in those moments and in those transitions, right? And I think if we bring the dignity back into our understanding of things like social justice movements, right, these are impor- these things are important to people. Whether or not you, you know, whether or not it's important to use people's preferred pronouns or to do land acknowledgments or so on and so forth, isn't about empty ritual. It's about what's important to people and what gives people dignity. Right, and you know, I I don't think it's a it, it shows a lack of objectivity to recognize that need in people,
0: and that's certainly the way that the doulas in the article describe their own work.
1: Well, I think also, you know, in in bringing all three articles in the comparison, one thing that stands out to me about why there's a sort of different uh, sort of sense of stakes and intensity with what's being discussed is in part because of how the, uh, sort of comparisons are being signified. I mean, I think there's something to be said about calling social justice, a new religion and the, and sort of surfacing the apprehension there, because part of what's being discussed is counter protest and not being able to manage or handle the sort of pushback the status quo is getting on any number of issues. Mm -hmm. So, How do we call it? It's this sort of mob movement, right? It's this sort of um, there's something going on that that brings this this one group together in such an intense way that we're not sure what we're going to do about them. And we've seen it before with religion and we would have a better name for it if we could manage it better um, or parse it better. And I think we see that actually in that second article that, you know, the sort of notion of, you know, new religious movements has given us ways to do that. Right. Yeah. Um, and we can tease out, well, there's this kind of religion or this status here and these sorts of protections and this amount of dignity. But this, these groups over here, they're kind of another thing. You know, yeah. I'm always amazed at the way at which uh, the questions we raise about ISKCON or Latter-day Saints or any of the groups that often make the sort of table of contents in a book on new religious movements. It's a different order of questioning against the ones that we would use For thinking about the groups, the larger groups and sometimes smaller groups with which we're familiar as actual true religions, right? Mm, But I think the Dula case to me is especially interesting because I think this is a space where the language and politics have been so accommodated. That is the the notion (laughs) of Dula, that we can talk about it with a certain sense of gravitas um, and sort of like auster seriousness that um, makes us forget that there was a time when it was very different. And I mean this in the sense of, you know, if we think mm-hmm. about uh, some of these, these movements, everything from funeral care to child rearing and child raising and, and birthing and breastfeeding, all of these are industries or, activities or rituals or rites that have been heavily licensed and legislated um, and often cool. framed in ways that have been, um, you know, I, I'm thinking about doulas, right? Doulas versus doctors, this sort of dichotomy here. You know, there's yeah. a time when doulas were seen as like, this is how you get health care if you're poor. It's well,
2: how yeah. you get
1: healthcare if you're not quite, you know, civilized or a real person. Breastfeeding is for people who are t- super in tune with nature, not for the modern woman. Right yeah yeah
0: uh, mm-hmm. so
1: with all these politics right it's easy to think of at least it, it's a i shouldn't say easy it's perhaps too easy and i, I think this is the, this is borne out in this article actually uh that there's no mention of doulas as in the term doulas being connected to slavery
0: no none whatsoever mm-hmm. which is interesting a
1: piece of the story of doulas like, yeah it's just as helper
2: Um, so important because i think there's yeah there's because i certainly hear in in the uk it's a word that's you know people people understand the difference legally if nothing else but people will use the term doula interchangeably with the word midwife for example which is a different thing right and it has a different has had a different legal status um and certainly you know in this country the, the the word doula is very much an imported word and it comes very much from you know what you might call the kind of yummy mummy set it doesn't because we don't you know we didn't we didn't have the same kinds of doulas right so the only doulas we get are the ones who are reinventing that term and reclaiming that term um yeah we we get we get we get the white doulas let's put it that way I think generally speaking
0: yeah I mean it would be really interesting to know um and and you know maybe I'll ask the author um you know, what sort of class politics, race politics, et cetera, mm. did she see or does she see operating here? Um, you know, particularly because, yeah, doulas in the U.S. are, you know, non, uh, for the most of them, like, you know, there's a distinct difference between doula and midwife. Uh, people receiving services and people providing services know the difference, um, or at least they learn the difference fairly quickly. So we're typically talking about non-medical assistance, uh, which is very clear in the article that, that here we're not talking about you know, providing an abortion in any fashion, but rather helping, um, you know, nurse the emotions and, and the Mm -hmm. experience after the fact, um, which I think is really interesting. And you're right. I mean, Richard, it's it, I think in the beginning of the article, it's just glossed as Greek for helper. And then we think, well, (laughs) where the term comes from, um, you know, what kind of helping are you doing and how much of it is voluntary and what was the, you know, what were the actions associated? Um, and none of that's here. And I can see all kinds of arguments for why, but the idea that, You know, the sort of notion that there is a, that doulas are more acceptable than perhaps what you were talking about in your articles, um, I think is, yeah, is maybe an interesting way to go. And like,
1: we're going to talk about reclamation or, um, rediscovery, um, of, of rituals and practices and the, the weight of these offices. Uh, I think it's also as important to raise questions about amnesia and forgetting, And And
2: appropriation. Yeah, yeah. right. And erasure. Yeah, 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 because no, absolutely. I mean, I I don't, I'm, it's not uh, a big part of my work, but you know, my work does mean that I I, I go through a lot of these kind of relatively alternative communities. I have come across a lot of doulas. Um, uh, And interestingly, the kind of the the social and cultural positioning of doulas uh, in the UK, at least, is very middle class compared to midwives. You know, your working class option is midwives because we have socialized healthcare. So, you know, um, it's much Ah. more of an issue, right? It's much more of an issue. is... is the kind of relative status of doctors and midwives and who gets to actually make decisions uh, and on what basis, right. Uh, within those situations. But yeah, I don't, I don't think I've ever heard a dealer in the UK make any reference to um, any kind of uh, anything, any racial, certainly not slavery, you know, none of that history is explained. Yeah. I'm not sure if they're even aware of it.
1: And yeah. I'm not like a lexical essentialist or by any means. <laughs> yeah. sure, sure. words, you better know its history. Um, on the contrary yeah. though, I think perhaps you know, thinking about all three of these articles, one of the things that scholars of religion could put their energy toward, perhaps more than, you know, bashing a shoddy job done on, you know, a, a fluff piece or whatever, is sometimes mm-hmm. helping to uh, show the exceptions to the rules and the things that we've forgotten, and the things wow. that, in drawing attention to uh, the nuance and contours of these stories that are being discussed, uh, to just yeah. to show uh, to audiences and to the public um, how deep these issues go, um, how how important the question of di- the question of dignity is for so many on yeah. all sides and margins and centers that uh, we have a better glimpse of even the conversation we're having in the first place, uh, which I think is a cool thing comparison has helped us do in these cases.
0: Yeah, Yeah. I think so. I mean, I think it's one of the things I love most about, you know, like my doctoral training and teaching is showing the way that, you know, religion as a concept and religious studies as a field can be a tool for peeling back all those layers. And it can work for nearly anything. And so we've obviously, for this podcast, picked things that are about religion, but we needn't have done that. And that's, you know, sort of exciting is to look at what are the social implications, you know, of a certain kind of practice, um, a certain kind of political stance, etc. And for this article, one of the things I keep coming back to is the way that there's almost no recognition, even though it's there, maybe it's not no recognition, there's no real interest in addressing in in a dogmatic or polemical manner, the issue of um, the religious nature of abortion debates in the U S you know, there's a sense that yes, there's a Mm -hmm. secular, maybe there is a secular religious divide, but instead it's very much an affirming kind of language about the work that people do that doulas do with religion, very broadly writ, um, Mm -hmm. which I think we could critique on the one hand as, um, you know, too nice, too affirming, too like pro-religion, but instead I see it as like a really interesting small snippet of a way that, um, or, or as a, a, a small kind of piece of data, I guess we would call that a datum, uh, that scholars of religion can take a glance at for thinking about a lot of these bigger picture questions instead of getting lost in a kind of broader dominant, you know, American political Discourse—it's kind of refreshing, actually.
2: I'm aware of this being part of a kind of slightly wider pattern as well. I mean, I'm aware that you know part of the uh, pushback against the rise of a kind of oppressive religious right. Uh, Christian right in the US is and the kind of erosion of uh, abortion rights. I'm aware that there are Jewish groups that are pushing back against it. I'm aware the Satanic Temple is pushing back against it. That there are various religions are saying that okay, if you're going to say that a religion has these rights, then you know our religion actually teaches this. Um, and, I, and I think it's kind of something quite neat about putting particularly those three things side by side. If you take the Satanic Temple and you take Jewish groups and you take doulas, you know, abortion doulas, is you've got kind of almost. Three levels of cynicism um, attacking the same kind of issue, right, where the satanic Temple seem to be doing this basically from a legal perspective that this is about um, everyone's freedom. And we're going to pretend that it's a right within our religion because that allows us to play interesting games and push back against the religious right. From that perspective, you've got kind of Jewish groups saying, "Well, actually, no, no, no. This is very much a part of our, of our uh, religious beliefs and, and, and tenets, and has been for a long time." And then you have, you know, the Doulas who, from the sound of this, are not really thinking about the political aspects at all. They're just coming at this from, you know, from that position of kind of personal dignity. Um, and it's interesting. You've got these kind of three, essentially three attempts to push back uh, and reclaim these abortion rights different degrees of of, i I want to i there's a better word than cynicism but i don't know what it is right in terms of what's going on here uh uh, political awareness perhaps
0: yeah the duos here certainly seem interested and this is back to richard's point about the large group or the mass
2: Mm. you
0: know um um, a mass counter protest is this is very intimate i mean the tone of the article the descriptions of the experiences uh very personal and very intimate and so i think it's an interesting regardless of who's being interviewed whether that's you know someone who is you know ordained uh has a role as a chaplain etc uh you know a a jewish doula etc the goal here seems to be a very one-to-one um you know intimate um moment as you said earlier theo of transition and support and dignity Mm -hmm. um so it's an interesting thing to come third in the in terms of the tone uh, yeah. and, the, and the kind of scope also. Um, I feel like we're sort of left in a way with the duty of tying up this conversation. And I don't want to be, um, you know, too nerdy about it and try to find some sort of perfect conclusion the way I would in something I was writing. But I'm left thinking a lot about, you know, back to the point we made in the beginning, which is the idea that religion – Acts as a kind of um, moderator or participator in various kinds of debates, discussions, conflicts, etc. Um, so mm-hmm. I see it here in the sense that the doulas describe this as sometimes personal conflict, personal pain, um, as a mode of leaving behind potential regret, hurt, etc. But that's navigating all kinds of political, personal, biological. Issues and I'm curious if you had to sort of sum up your own articles, thinking a little bit about religion as a moderating force or um, a disguising force. As you know, as you said, Theo, how would you how would you articulate that as your outro?
2: Well, I think that um, I'm going to fall back to what I often fall back to at this point, which is the notion of semiogenesis, which is kind of how we make meaning in the world uh, and how how meaning. Um, meaning making is a really difficult term because it it implies that it's something that we kind of do consciously rather than something that kind of arises through the things that we do Um, and I think that so much of what we talked about today is about really simply what's important to people what's how do they find meaning in their life what's important to them Um, and the ways in which often the conflicts that we have politically and socially are about mediating between what's important to different groups Um, and when we're talking about religious freedom, which, you know, I'm aware of how big of an issue that is in the States right now, you know, where does my freedom end and your oppression begin? Um, and what does that look like? And what does it mean? You know, you know, the kind of freedom is not an, an an absolute, right? It is something at least that I think possibly we understand a little bit more in Europe that there's, that there are negotiations that happen between different kinds of groups and what's important to them. Um, uh, and I think religion is one of the main ways in which people find, um, meaning arising in their lives and the ways in which they express meaning in their lives. So it's not, it's not important to me because this is my religion or this is my religious belief. It is important to me because it's already important to me. And religion allows it me to express that in a certain way. Um, mm. And You know, I would say exactly the same as certain kind of social justice tropes. You know, why is it important to use people's pronouns? Why is it important to do land acknowledgements? of these kinds of things? It's important. It's not important because it's part of the rules that we have as social justice movements together. It's important because it's important to people. And if it's important to you, then it's important to me. Then we're going to negotiate and navigate what's important um, together and where religion Uh, or religious attitudes at their best come into human life um, is in, in in affording that dignity to human beings, I think, recognizing what's important. That's the small answer. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) That's the answer you get at 10 to eight at night.
1: (laughs) Uh, I've been coming back to a line that's in the, the piece on doulas and, um, there's a full spectrum doula, nurse midwifery student, um, at Yale university school of nursing, Elizabeth Curtis, she says, uh, sort of, I guess in the, the course of the discussion she was interviewed, uh, she says, quote, I'm grateful for the world of radical organizing that happens around policy and protest for expanding access. And also I have found lately that I have a harder time showing up to those galvanizing spaces. Curtis yeah. acknowledged. And I think the galvanizing spaces, the idea that there are discourses that push and pull people to the seeming edges of the exchanges we're having among people we see as even occupying the same space, right? Mm-hmm. The, the fringes and edges of our universe of discourse, as it were, um, affords room for certain people and doesn't afford room for others. And we can sometimes see the conversation we attach to religion as being part of something that galvanizes, but also something that mediates and moderates too. Um, And it's not that religion mediates and moderates, but people find that as an avenue, uh, religion or the things we associate with religion uh, provides avenues for either galvanizing or moderating and when and how it does that and and how people show up and and move themselves and others within those spaces, I think is um, a sort of cartography that we can help people map better If we're not so focused on, um, making sure that all is in view the way we would have it in view already. Um, Mm -hmm. I think we should start with what people are observing. I think we should start with the stories that people have. We should start with the, um, the sort of rough drafts of trying to make sense of this all, uh, that we can continue the conversation and, and bring it to a nuance that is, uh, more befitting of the the folks we hope to to reach with our writing and our podcast and the like, but also um, one that they probably should rightfully expect from people who've thought about this for as long as scholars have.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Especially and just like
1: uh, aim to know as much as they do.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> don't we? And I think just as the person who uh, who you just quoted in the, in the article, um, who says, you know, basically. She's interested in the way that religion gives space to sit with disagreement, to sit with discomfort. Religion for her in this case is very specifically the Episcopal Church. But yeah, I think that's something that that the field of religious studies can, um, I'm not sure I'll say should, but at least can provide for people is the ability to see that very particular place where different things collide, uh, and to deal with and, and maybe find something productive in that difference and that, uh, discomfort. And I can't really imagine a better place to end on, you know, the, the productive nature of, um, of our field. Um, So let me please thank our guests, Dr. Richard Newton, Dr. Theo Wildcroft. It was such a pleasure to be with you. Um, This has been Discourse, a podcast of the Religious Studies Project. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.
1: The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number
2: SC047750. Brought to you by Editor-in-Chief Andy Alexander and Founding Editors Chris Cotter and David Robertson. Our features are edited by Israel Dominguez and Savannah Finver, and our Opportunities Digest by Trevor Lynn. Audio editing by Alex Matthews and Nathan Springer. Podcast transcription by Ayesha Javid and Jacob Knoblet, And Social media managed by Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com.co.uk
1: .co.uk and .ca links, or donating at patreon.com projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube,
2: iTunes, Instagram, and other portals. Thanks for listening.